Good morning. I hope you're all doing well this morning. Um, needed to let you know about a couple of things before we get started. Um, a lot of people went on vacation or I'm sure they didn't go anywhere. They probably were at home doing their vacation or holiday thing at home with the kids, which is great. But, um, we don't have that many, um, options, which is actually good. And I'll tell you why. Because it gives us a chance to check out some of these other ones that I have been wanting to see what they're all about. Um, so let's just check it out. This one is a little bit off, but let's see. I could just all the music. Oh, no. Let me just go forward a little bit. All right. The South Indian town of Tiruvannamalai and its nearby mountain Arunachala have attracted saints and holy men for well over a thousand years. A hundred times older than the Himalayas, this mountain has been declared by Hindu scriptures to be a manifestation of Shiva himself. The Skanda Purana, a Hindu scripture, states that the hill came into being after Shiva took the form of an infinite column of light and then challenged two other gods, Brahma and Vishnu, to reach its top and bottom. Neither was successful. Shiva then condensed himself into the form of this mountain, allowing pilgrims to worship it. 
Today, it is one of the most sacred places in southern India. In 1896, a 16-year-old schoolboy walked out on his family and, driven by an inner compulsion, slowly made his way to Tiruvannamalai. Prior to his arrival, the young boy had attained enlightenment in his hometown of Madurai, located a few hundred kilometers south of Tiruvannamalai. A spontaneous inquiry into his real nature had resulted in the complete and permanent dissolution of his sense of being an individual person. It was replaced by a directly experienced knowledge that he was identical with an unmanifest substratum in which all the phenomena of the world appeared and disappeared. On his arrival to Tiruvannamalai, he threw away all his money and belongings and presented himself to the god in the temple. Afterwards, he remained in its precincts, abandoning himself to a recently discovered inner awareness of the divine that he felt to be the inner light of his own true being a state that he later termed consciousness, or the self. experience and knowledge of who and what he truly was remained with him irrespective of whether his body was conscious interacting with the world or in a state of deep sleep in hindu culture it could be said that he had realized the self that is to say he had realized by direct experience that nothing could exist apart from an indivisible and universal consciousness which is experienced in its unmanifest form as pure beingness, or in Indian philosophy, this is referred to as mahat, meaning awareness. In its manifest form, it is the appearance and consciousness of the universe. Normally, the full recognition of this awareness is known only through spiritual practice or grace after a long and arduous period of effort, but in his case, it happened spontaneously, without prior effort or desire. Mm. Ramana became oblivious to the needs of his body, which wasted away as he was rarely conscious enough to eat or attend to its needs. Insects ate away his thighs, but the bliss of his inner experience was so intense he never noticed the disintegration of his body. After three years of living like this in various temples and shrines in Tiruvannamalai, he began a slow return to physical normality, a process that was not completed for several years.
an ashram was eventually built around Sri Ramana by his devotees so that it could accommodate a constantly growing number of visitors. To this day, they come in their millions from all over the world. Sri Ramana spoke very little, preferring instead to communicate the essence of his state through silence. He knew from experience that if he simply remained absorbed in his own self, his own awareness, those in his proximity would, by a kind of osmosis, Get begin to experience that state for themselves. He was willing to give verbal answers to questions and hand out practical spiritual advice, but he considered these to be inferior and indirect forms of transmission. This silent flow of power represented his teachings in their most direct and concentrated form. Mm. The importance he attached to them is indicated by his occasional statements to the effect that his verbal teachings were only given out to those who were unable to understand his silence. To those who wanted a verbal presentation of his teachings, at the highest level that could be expressed in words, he would say that consciousness alone exists, not as an individual experience, but as an underlying substratum in which all beings and physical phenomena appear and disappear. If this was received with skepticism, he would say that awareness of this truth is obscured by the self-limiting ideas of the ego mind, and that if these ideas were abandoned, then the reality of consciousness would be revealed. Few of his questioners were able to discard their deeply conditioned experiences of themselves as individuals through explanations alone. When people complained that Sri Ramana's pronouncements did not correspond to their own experience of themselves, he would often prescribe a spiritual practice known as self-inquiry. He recommended this technique so often and so vigorously, it was regarded by many people as being the most distinctive feature of his teachings. He taught that the idea that one is a person who inhabits a body can be challenged and eliminated by focusing exclusively on the sense of I that registers and coordinates all our activities. When one thinks, I am angry, or I see a tree, or I am a lawyer, there is an I that believes it experiences all these things. Sri Ramana taught that this is an error that arises simply because we never look at or challenge the underlying I that has all these ideas. A vigilant focus on the I, and not on the things it thinks about, causes the sense of being a person to diminish and die, leaving a true knowledge of one's self. Abiding as what remains when the individual I has vanished is known as self-realization or liberation. Going against the established Hindu tradition, 
which promotes the idea that renunciation of one's family life is essential for those who want to progress spiritually. Sri Ramana taught that this method of self-inquiry could and should be practiced in the midst of one's ordinary, everyday life. He also advocated complete and unconditional surrender to the divine and said that these two methods, self-inquiry and self-surrender, were the only two effective methods for attaining liberation. In just the same way that we project a dream world at night, Sri Ramana taught that the world we see in front of us is merely a projection of the one who sees it. The projection manifests on the screen of consciousness, where we take it to be real, and imagine that we too are in this world, experiencing its dramas. In this self-created world, we are issued a script that determines our activities. We are unknowing actors in a drama who fail to realize we are just following an ordained script. We are unable to recognize that we are the screen on which the action unfolds and falsely believe that we are one of the characters. The source of the projection is the I that identifies with the body and then creates a false dream world to play and suffer in. Inquiry into the nature and origin of this I stops the projection and establishes one in the state where one knows oneself to be the indivisible consciousness in which all creation appears and disappears. This is liberation. Buffering.
that university in the 1970s slowly going into debt by buying more and more spiritual books. I had an endless fascination to find out anything I could about Eastern religions. But each book I read just prompted me to go out and buy another one. Then uh, one day at uh, Blackwell's in Oxford, this book quite literally fell in my lap. Somebody on the other side of the shelf pushed his book through and on my side a book plopped out into my lap and there was my first Ramana book in my hands. Unlike every other book I had ever read, this book didn't prompt me to buy another book. It shut me up in a completely literal sense. It, it stopped my mind dead in its tracks. Somehow the book, which was pointing at how to be quiet, simply had the power within its words to put me in that state as I read it. There are so many books if you go to Ramana Ashram. There are so many books about Ramana's conversations, although many of them are sourced from the same few books in the beginning. Ramana himself always used to say that my primary teaching is silence and that people who couldn't understand or assimilate the silence that was coming off him could ask questions and get answers, but those answers were not the primary principal teaching that Bhagavan was trying to give out. Uh, truth he was talking about was beyond mind and beyond words. He used to say the words are just pointers, the real teaching is in silence. And to experience that silence, it doesn't just mean um, physical silence, it's total silence of the mind. It is that once you have, your mind is established in the natural silence, which is not about speaking or not speaking, it is not about doing something or not doing something, but it's to discover that inmost truth within yourself, which is what has happened in the case of Ramana. People were attracted to Bhagavan because he had something to offer which is very unique. It is also, he was pointing to something that we all experience, but we're all confused about, I. said scriptures might be useful for inculcating enthusiasm or giving you a few basic facts but he said at some point you have to discard your books and actually focus on the truth of who you are and he said books won't help you to do that neither will an understanding you have to practice a lot of his teachings are expressed within the terminology and conceptual framework of Advaita Vedanta, which is the ancient philosophy of non-duality. Many people have said it's the pinnacle of Indian philosophy. Jnani comes from a Sanskrit word, knowledge, and the I at the end means one who has jnana, which is knowledge. It's not knowledge of things, of objects, it's knowledge of who or what one really is. So someone in that state is revered in India as someone who's reached the final ultimate goal of life and in a sense has become one with God. He has completely transcended his individual sense of identity and become one with the substratum that's underneath it. So though words can indicate how we can try to have that experience, that is the limit to which words can go. I don't think intellectual discourse 
it is in any way necessary for a direct experience. If, if you're ready, as Ramana obviously was, then the power of the self will reveal itself at the right moment. It's a clear non-dual experience, that is an experience in which there is no division between the experiencer and what is experienced. He was pointing to the immediate experience of what is. The real I that he experienced is beyond thought and therefore beyond words. It is the basis on which everything appears. So it is the one fundamental reality, the eternal reality. So it cannot be adequately described in words or grasped by thought. Bhagavan's basic working hypothesis, which he asked everyone to accept and experiment on, is that your individual sense of I, the I that says I am happy or I must do this or I see that tree, is a false entity that only springs into existence because it rises and associates with something else other than itself. I see the tree, I is the subject, tree is the object. He said this individual sense of I can only subsist as long as it's associating with something. So what he said you should try to do is to sever the association between I, the subject, and all the things it thinks, remembers, perceives. He said if you can hold on unwaveringly to this inner sense of I, which is the thinker of your thoughts, the perceiver of your perceptions, then it cannot subsist in isolation by itself. It has to subside and go back to its source. And when that happens, it disappears and reveals the truth of who you are. So he says it only exists because you fail to question its reality. And once it does rise, it always associates with things. And if you can sever that connection, it goes home back to the self and disappears. He found I is not a limited personal I, but we usually refer to as I. That is just a a superficial appearance. What I really is, is the one infinite whole uh, basis on which everything else appears. There are 60 billion bodies in the world. How do they refer to themselves, each one of them? They are talking different language, different culture, different, uh, different religions, but how do they refer to themselves? I. In, you verify in any language, I. So Maharishi said, find out. That's also he never says, as, this is my teaching. He says, find out. Or there are 60 billion eyes. Or there is only one eye to which all the 60 billion bodies are referring to. We... Uh, must uh, attribute to Ravana is that uh, the simplicity of his pointing. He was not really into mystifying seekers. He always tried to pull out the things which were not so important. And of course, at the same time, so broad was his expression that he could speak very much and satisfy the minds of pundits of his time, great scholars of the time. And to the ordinary people, he could speak to them in, in, in ways that they could assimilate uh, easily and make whatever step he felt was important for them. There were also a lot of people who were attracted to him, not because of his teachings, but in spite of his teachings. 
they just found him a very loving personality. They felt very happy in his presence. They were attracted to him as a person. Though his teaching was that he's not the person that he appears to be. So people are attracted to him in different ways, in different levels. Ultimately, it's because what he experienced is the ultimate reality. And he experienced the ultimate reality as himself. That had an appeal not only to human beings, even animals were attracted to him. That power of attraction we can't explain by any simple theory. bottom line for Bhagavan was happiness and peace and he said that if you sit in the presence of someone who is permanently established in that state you catch that happiness you catch that peace in the same way that sitting within sneezing range of someone who has a cold you catch a cold so he said sit with someone who's in this state, sit with someone whose mind is absolutely still, who has completely transcended desire, and in that place, in that presence, you yourself will get a glimpse and a taste of what that man is experiencing all the time. So al although he could talk philosophy, he could give advice on how to reach this state, he said, if you come here and you sit here, you'll find out what my teachings are simply by being quiet and not thinking too much and not questioning too much. sometimes spoke in the language and the terminology of Advaita Vedanta or other whatever school of philosophy or conceptual framework in which people asked him questions. Essentially his teaching was from his own experience. Bhagavan himself refused to commit 
himself to being a member of any particular school or any particular philosophy. When a, when a French professor asked him, are your teachings the same as Shankaracharya? Bhagavan replied, other people have read my teachings and found similarities between them and Shankaracharya, but my teachings are all from my own experience. They're not dependent on anything else. Advaita Vedanta, it is a philosophy about non-duality. It's an experience in which there are no two. So it's a, it can only be an experience in which one is experiencing itself. That one is I, I experiencing itself. That is what Advaita Vedanta is all about. Though uh, Ramana was asked questions in terms of Advaita Vedanta, in terms of this, a lot of this conceptual baggage, he cut through it all and presented things as simple a way as people were able to grasp. Because essentially the truth is very simple. It is just about I experiencing itself as it really is. People came to him, curious, interested, seekers, and if you follow the progression of their stories, there's always a moment when they say, and then he looked at me, and then I got quiet, or then he looked at me and I got peaceful and happy. There was something about this man that calmed people's minds, that made them happy, that made them peaceful, and made them want to come back for more. Ramana Maharshi never declares himself as a guru. The heart, that is the place of happiness, that is the inner guru, which is Arunachala Ramana. Our experience in our three states of waking, dream, and sleep. 
in this waking state we assume this body is I, but in dream we continue to experience the same I, but we don't experience this body. We experience some other body, a mind-projected body. So since we're able to experience I in dream without experiencing this physical body, I cannot be identical with this physical body. So also, since we now experience I without experiencing whatever bodies we experience as I in a dream, those bodies can also cannot be I. So any body that we experience as I is just a temporary phenomena. It's not what I essentially is. Because we are so accustomed to experiencing multiplicity um, and otherness in waking and dream, it seems to us sleep is just a state of blank. But the same I that experiences waking and dream also experiences sleep. So I is the one underlying reality that um, supports the appearance of these three states, waking, dream and sleep. About the three states, what Bhagavan thought was that they're all states of the individual I. Uh, the waking state and the dream is quite clear there's an I functioning in both. He said in deep sleep this I sinks back into the self but in a state of ignorance. It's not aware of itself and it's not aware of the self. Bhagavan expressed this in so many ways in so many different places but just one example in this book uh, Ramana Paravidya Upanishad in which uh, Lakshman Sharma recorded his teachings in Sanskrit verses. In one verse he says, the pair that is referring to the, the world that is experienced and the I that is experienced it, shine in waking and dream only by the functioning of the mind. In deep sleep, both of them fail to shine. Therefore, both are mental. He said when this I, which is the coordinator of activities in the waking and dream state goes, then you'll find it's also gone in the sleep state. And then he said, knowing that you're the self all the time means that you won't be lacking self-awareness at 3 a.m. in the morning when you're fast asleep. That which transcends the three states cannot be um, in any way limited by the three states. It cannot be something that does not exist in the three states. It has to be something that exists in the three states, but exists independent of the three states. That alone is trans transcending the three states. The only thing that exists in all our three states of experience, in waking, dream and sleep, is I. Now, Bhagavan said he was fully aware of the self, even when he was asleep. And I think that's one of the key signs. The, the states of waking, dreaming and sleeping, they come and go in the self. But you have self-awareness all the time. These three states might come and go but at no point do you lose self-awareness. Falling asleep. Dang it. He said the world is a projection of the eye who sees it. 
in exactly the same way that the dream world is a projection of the dreamer. So in that sense, it is inside. He said, everything you see is in fact your own projection. He said, when, when that projecting system vanishes, then you no longer see something as outside or inside. You simply recognize it as being your own self. But until that moment, he said, everything is an internal projection onto a screen in much the same way that a movie is projected on a screen, but it's all going on inside your own head. Most of the things that we take to be real are real relative to something else. Relative to the, our experience that we are a body and mind, if this body is I, it must be real, because I is real. If this body is real, since it's a part of this physical world, the physical world must be real. But this is all relative to our experience. So we, when we talk about what is real, if you want to, we have to distinguish between what is relatively real and what is absolutely real. What is absolutely real cannot be conditioned in any way, cannot be uh, relative to anything else. It has to be real in its own right. So when Bhagavan says the world is not real, he doesn't mean it's something you can't kick and stub your toe on and go, ouch. Reality in Hinduism is something completely different. We take reality to be whatever is perceived by the senses, whereas in Hinduism, reality is something which exists all the time, something which has its own being, and something which shines by its own light. According to the experience of Bhagavan Ramana, this world is just a dream. We can believe that, but even if we believe it, we continue to experience this world as if it is real, as if it exists independent of our experience of it. The very simple definition of reality, that's of absolute reality, was given by Bhagavan Ramana, it must be eternal, it must be unchanging, and it must be self-shining. Self-shining means it must experience itself by its own light of self-awareness. According to this definition, the only thing in our experience that is permanent is I. Reality is that which exists and shines when everything which comes and goes has gone. Whatever appears at one time and disappears at another time cannot be real because it, it seems to be real at the time we're experiencing it. When we cease experiencing it, it ceases to appear to be real. When we're experiencing a dream, it seems to be real. As soon as we wake up from the dream, it seems to be unreal. So the mind also appears and disappears. The mind, which is the experiencer of everything else, itself is appearing and disappearing. But we experience the appearance and the disappearance of the mind. So we, that is the, the I that underlies the mind, are the uh, unchanging, uh, the, the one reality that doesn't appear or disappear, but is always experienced. Actually, I is like the, the cinema screen on which the picture is projected. It's one unchanging background on which all experience comes and goes. So according to that definition, I alone is real. Things that appear and disappear are not deemed to be real in Hindu philosophy. So when he says the world is unreal, what he's saying is it's not there all the time. And also, it's contingent on you perceiving it. He said, if there's no world there at three o'clock, you can't say it's real because it's dependent on you to wake up and see it. He said, there's something else, something prior to all this, 
which never goes away, which shines by its own light, which has beingness, which is your own beingness. And that's the self, that's the reality. Everything else comes and goes as an appearance within it.
subconscious mind which has created the story of the drama of the dream and it is running the show this self is that ultimate reality without this self apart from this self there is absolutely no world if you try to find reality or happiness or anything through a projected external search you're going to fail it you, it is in fact the one who does the searching not something you look for it's something inherently stable it's there all the time and the activity activities of your mind just cover it up the only thing that doesn't change is i mind is constantly changing body is also constantly changing because we confuse these things with i we feel i is changing what ramana is saying is that if you get rid of the one who sees then that which is seen also disappears this is this this is quite hard to uh, accept logically but he he said the perceived is absolutely contingent on the perceiver if there's no perceiver there's no perceived either and once both of them go you find out who you really are and what the world really is something real or to experience something illusory yeah, i must exist in order to experience that so even if everything else is illusory i must be real i i actually exist but though it is certain that i am it is not at all clear what i am we now confuse this i am with things other than i what bhagavan is saying is that if you see something as separate from yourself then that's a wrong cognition a wrong perception he says that if everything that you see you know directly to be your own self and is not separate from you in the sense that there's no i inside you perceiving something oh, out there okay. so that's the correct understanding the correct experience of the world he's not saying um it's not there he's saying what you've got is a, is a superimposition of a wrong idea what you're seeing is an external thing which you take to be real he said what there essentially is the self the reality in which appears you and the world and so long as you imagine that you're in a body looking at the world you're going to suffer but he said once you get rid of the person inside who looks outside at something then you find your own natural state
Sanskrit scholar, one of the greatest in several centuries, man of prodigious intellect and a tremendous devotion to Ramana. He records it in Sanskrit. He says, the world is not different from the mind, the universe, the cosmos is not different from the mind and the mind is not different from the heart. Heart, you see, seat of the self, it's the self itself. The world is not, the universe is not, the cosmos this is, is a not long different story. from the mind and the mind I is not apart from the heart, so in the heart the whole story comes to an end. My son took him and spent them all. I could have told you that was going to happen. I knew there would be a day that would come where he was going to need it so bad that he was going to take it, and he did. That's that's kids for you. He always took this mountain, which you can see behind me, as his guru. When he wrote a poem saying, From my unthinking childhood, the immensity of Arunachala had shone in my awareness. Meaning, before he could even think rationally, there was something about this mountain that impressed upon him its holiness. And he initially thought it was some kind of heavenly realm that nobody on earth could go to. And when, uh, when he was told in his teens it was a place you could buy a train ticket to, it was quite, quite a shock for him. So he, in later life, attributed all his spiritual attainments to the power of this mountain. He said, this mountain is my guru, it's my God, it's myself. When he was 12 years old, his father passed away. And when all his relatives were weeping and he saw his father's body lying there, he was puzzled. He said, why everyone saying father has gone when he is just lying here? People said, no, no, this is just your father's body. Your father has gone. So he was puzzling over this. He came to the conclusion, I clearly know the I in me, but my father's I has left his body. That uh, thought was like a seed in his mind. And a few years later, when he was 16, he was um, just uh, supposed to be doing some homework in a room upstairs in his house. And he suddenly got an intense fear of death. And generally for most of us, when we get a fear of death, our mind goes outwards. We have, because we're attached to family, friends, possessions, so many things. Um, we start thinking about all these things, but this is what we fear to lose. But in his case, instead of thinking about anything outward, he thought about the eye. What happens when this body dies, what happens to I? And he went with the flow. He uh, looked at himself, tried to find out what it was that was dying and what would remain after the death. And within a few minutes, he had somehow reverted to this primal state, uh, which is beyond birth and death, in which he remained for the rest of his life. He said all this happened just in a flash. Um, so almost without any reasoning process, he, the intense fear of death made his mind turn in to try to find out what is the eye, what will happen to the eye when the body dies. And his body was just lying there motionless like a corpse. 
and very intensely his mind went inwards, focusing its entire attention on I. And then he had a clear experience of what I actually is. He realized that his real nature was deathless. And it was so powerful, that insight, that in seeing, that it really drove his mind away. And it never really returned as ego again. He had absolutely no agenda. He didn't ask people to come. He didn't tell them to do anything. But if you asked a question and wanted him to endorse what you were doing, he'd say, fine, if you weren't happy with it, he might say, change. And if you asked him directly, how do I get enlightened? What's the best, quickest way? He'd always say, inquiry. This who am I of Ramana Maharshi is not a technique, is not a formula. It is not to be trained or given classes. This self-effort to turn our outturned attention to interned attention. When you, that's all, one movement of outward to inward and the rest of the things you yourself know. That's why Maharishi calls it as inner guru. The inner guru is within all of us, Maharishi said. Who is that inner guru? Not another small imp seated in your heart. This is the happiness. See, Bhagavan's philosophy he is not totally new. But what was great about Maharshi was he lived it. In the present day, he lived it. Here is a person who lived like an ancient Rishi. Lived it. That's the great of the greatest of Bhagavan. Bhagavan is my blood grandfather's elder brother. My father's father's elder brother. When he was a child, he was old enough to be seen as an old man. So when I was a boy, I knew him only as an old man. No concept of sage or saint. Since he, Ramana Maharshi, moved with me like a grandfather only, he will move with me. Hey, Ganesha, come here. Like a old, my own grandfather, how he will call, hey, Nova, sit here. For instance, when I was three years old, there was one American lady, Eleanor Pauline Noy. I became very fond of her. So I will always go and sit on her lap. And perhaps you Westerners, it is difficult for you to understand. The Brahmins do not like the Brahmin children to be touched by a Westerner. It's pollution. But I never knew all that. I will go and sit on her lap. And there is so much of opposition. And Bhagavan should have noticed this. This is my conjecture. So we were living in the town. So one day when I came, I came running to Bhagavan. Bhagavan 
looked at me when I prostrated because my mother would say go and prostrate to Bhagavan. I prostrated when I got up. Bhagavan looked at me and said Ganesha, one of the noi party and Okandandraka, boy, our Madil Okanduko. You are noi. I used to call her noi, noi. You are noi seated there, go and sit on her lap. <laughs> How will you describe Ramana? That famous thing. Mighty in personality. On this spot, mighty in personality. <laughs> Major Chadwick was the first Westerner to permanently stay in the ashram. And he, after coming here, he read Hindu scriptures, Hindu some of these things. He said, only through your guru you can have self-realization. Ramana Maharshi never declares himself as a guru. So he had a logical doubt. Have I given up everything to come here to you, Bhagavan? I think I have. To be told you are not the Guru, what will happen to me? <laughs> Maharishi's answer was, who has all these doubts? Major Chadwick, he was really great. He was a World War I veteran. Six foot uh, four inches, hmm? broad shoulder with a booming voice. He always used to call me morning, <laughs> morning. He was fond of me. It was, I told you, his dedication, his surrender to Bhagavan. He had an incisive mind though. Hmm? You will not take anything for granted, you see. The reminiscence, if you read, his beautiful reminiscence of the reminiscence, Chadwick's reminiscence is the best of you but the very fact he was totally surrendered. Those days, coming all the way, conveniences were not there and all that. You could imagine. It was great. Morris Friedman, that story you know, no? Once I was standing in front of a stores, the kitchen entrance, he had come in a jeep. He had brought a bag of rice. <laughs> he was wearing a cocky shorts. White shirt, that's all, simple. <laughs> so he greeted me, 